and we've got four weeks left in the series with two chapters to go. Um, we, we talk this week and next week. I want you to view these as we get into it as week one and week two, because there's kind of a marriage here that happens um, as we start talking today uh, about a problem that exists in the church or that will exist in the church heavily as the days progressed. And then what happens is we get to next week and Paul encourages Timothy to stand against it. Okay, and so we're going to talk about what it means to stand firm and be approved. And so I want you to view this week and next week as part one and part two. Okay, now let's jump in here for a second. I want to just ask you this. Have you ever noticed... Have you ever noticed that it's unpopular to be a Christian? If you've noticed that it's unpopular to be a Christian, then here's what I'm going to say to you, okay? I I, I mean, I'll, I'll be admittedly maybe a little judgy if I don't know you or your story very well, but here's the deal. If you've noticed that it's unpopular to be a Christian, then that probably means that you are living a Christian lifestyle. If you've never noticed that it's unpopular to be a Christian, then probably, at least to some degree, what's happening is that you are living a Christian life in secret and that your behavior out front and in public is not something that is noticeably different than anybody else's. And I think there's, there's something for us to know there. And we've talked about this a little bit this week, but when Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he makes it very clear that you can't kind of be a Christian. You can act like kind of a Christian, but you can't kind of be a Christian because the idea of being a Christian, it's that last song we sang about the throne of God and before that, how we have this strong and perfect plea. Because when I am in Christ, I am different. Because my sinfulness was put on Christ on the cross, and his righteousness was given to me, and I will not live a perfect life, but I should be striving to live a life that lives up to the righteousness that I've been given. And so we can't be a kind of a Christian. It doesn't really work that well. And if you were to take a poll of the people that you work with, if you were to take a poll of the people that you hang out with outside of Sunday mornings, outside a small group, if you were to ask them a simple question, Like, hey, do you think I'm a Christian by the way I act, by the way I talk, by the things I don't say? If you were to ask that question, as a believer in Christ whose righteousness has been given to you, they ought to answer, well, yeah, that's a no-brainer. But if you're asking somebody, hey, based on what you know about me, do you think I'm a Christian? And their answer is, yeah, probably not. You might have something to figure out. And the full counsel of God will always be offensive. See, some of us have bought into this understanding that I can be a Christian and I can offend no one. But the reality is that the full counsel of God will always be offensive because the full counsel of God will always point out where there is a break between what is and what should be. In fact, look what what Paul writes Um, to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, our lives are a Christ-like 
fragrance, rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So what that means is that you are a scented candle. Okay? Um, People still use those? Okay, you're a scented candle. Once, when we lived in Bettendorf, we had a fire in our basement. Because I left a candle burning. Don't worry, I don't have any candles in my office. But I left a candle burning, and it caught the candle holder on fire. By the way, if you are ever in the market to make and sell something, you would think that a flame-retardant candle holder would be a good idea. Mine wasn't, and it came from the family Christian bookstore. <sighs> Satan's weaved his way in there, too. No, I'm just... But, but what happened... That was, that was unfair. But what happened is I left the candle burning and it got really hot because the wax ran out and it just, it, and it broke and it caught the candle holder on fire and the candle holder caught the wall on fire um, and we had a fire in the basement and the fire alarm went off, the smoke alarm went off. Carrie took the two, they were, they were younger. Travis was a, a first grader by then. Aubrey was, was not even in school and, and Riley was in high school, but she took the younger ones out, and I hollered at Riley, and she got up, and, and she was downstairs where the fire was, and we went up and outside and called the fire department, and they came and put it out, and it wasn't tragic, um, but it could have been. But what happened is um, the fire guy, he's got a name. Blake, what's his name? Marshall. The fire marshal, thank you. He asked me, he's like, hey, what, what, he's doing his little checklist, what kind of candle was it? It's like two in the morning, and I thought I was being clever, and I said, blueberry. <laughs> he was not amused. And after a full night's sleep, I get it. But at the time, I thought I was really being clever. We are scented candles. To some, we smell sweet and good. We are fragrant. We are what they would light on purpose. To others, man, we are the smell of death. That blueberry candle that smelled sweet and good, after a second, after it went and after the fire started, it didn't smell sweet and good any longer. And so what, what Paul is telling the church here, he's like, hey, Christians, you that are being saved, you that have Jesus Christ, you that are made new in Christ, that are on mission, that are going out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to some, to those that are being saved, you will be a sweet smell. You will be a fragrant smell. They will like the way you smell. They'll want to be around you. You will be attractive to them. To those that refuse the gospel, to those that want nothing to do with the gospel, to those that think Jesus Christ is make-believe, you will smell like death. And the reason you will smell like death is because the message of the cross simply says, believe or perish. And there isn't a lot of sugarcoating that God allows for the message of the cross. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. And so it's this idea that if you are 
responsive to the gospel message that should exude from my life. It should be like a scent that I carry around with me. If you are responsive to the gospel, then I am a sweet fragrance to you. If you are not responsive to the gospel, then I stink. And you don't want anything to do with me. And that's the way that it's always been. But what happens is that because we don't like to stink, some in the church over the course of time have and will start to compromise. Because we don't want to smell funky. We want to engage people. We don't want people to say, no, 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 I want nothing to do with you. See, Paul tells us that from the beginning, there was supposed to be this dividing line. But but sometimes in the church, what happens is we want to be so attractive to people, and we don't want to smell like death to people, so we start to compromise. We start to compromise, and it looks like this. We start to compromise orthodoxy. Orthodoxy um, simply means right thinking. When something is orthodox, we have right thinking about it. And so Christian orthodoxy means that we have right thinking about Christianity. Biblical orthodoxy means that we have right thinking about the Bible. It's the things that the Bible teaches, clearly. We are biblically orthodox when we think rightly about this. When we start to compromise this, when we start to say, well, it was a good idea and they were nice thoughts, and it's good because it helps us learn how to be nice people. It teaches us good moral values, but it's not really true. It's more like Aesop's fables. Then I lose my orthodoxy. And what's happened in churches, and what Paul is going to be warning Timothy about, is that in the last days, in the last days, and by the way, we are in the last days, and I'm not saying that to be like, oh no, like what does he know that I don't? I don't know anything that you don't, We'll get there later. Um, we'll talk about it. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know something you don't. We're in the last days simply because in the, the, the church prophetic Christian calendar, this time that exists from the giving of the Holy Spirit until the return of Christ is considered the last days. Joel tells us that, right? The prophet Joel writes about that. He's in the last days, I will pour my spirit out on my people. The Holy Spirit will come in power on my people. That's what Joel tells us. And then in, in the early church in Acts, Peter gets up and he says, this is being fulfilled right now. You think we're drunk. We're not drunk. But what Joel said, what the prophet Joel said, is happening now. God is pouring his spirit out. This is the last days. We live in the last days. We will be in the last days until Christ returns. But but Paul tells Timothy, in the last days, people are going to start to compromise orthodoxy. He doesn't use those words, but that's basically what he's saying. People will start to compromise orthodoxy in the last days. And what happens when we compromise orthodoxy, always, always what follows is we compromise orthopraxy. These are your fancy theological words for the day. Orthodoxy is right thinking. Orthopraxy is right behavior that flows from right thinking. So when I think about something correctly, then right behavior flows from it. When I start to compromise what's true, then behavior comes a free-for-all. And that's what happens. And that's what Paul warns about um, in this chunk of Scripture, and that's what we're going to get into. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, or you can follow along on the screen. And as we do that, I want you to think about, we've talked about this before, 
Think about a frog in a pot. You know, of course, I, I think I've shared this with you before. I'm sure you've heard it other places. It's not my knowledge um, that you can boil a frog alive in a pot with no lid. It should be able to hop right out. As soon as it, the water gets uncomfortable, it should be able just to jump right out of the pot. But you can boil a frog alive. All you have to do is gradually increase the temperature. Because a frog won't notice that the temperature has changed if it doesn't change dramatically. A frog won't notice that there's danger. A frog won't notice that the environment is becoming inhospitable. A frog won't know that it should jump out of the pot, that things have gotten that bad until it is no longer able to jump out of the pot. You can boil a frog alive as long as you do it gradually. Here's the deal. That's the warning Paul gives to the church. Don't let that happen to you. So that's what he says. Here's how it looks. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. Okay, when he says you should know this, uh, the original Greek there is realize this. Uh, you might have it translated in your version, mark this or check this. Basically, what it means is this present tense, you should know and you should not forget because this will never, until the day you die, until the day you're called home, this will never not be the case. You will always need to know this. This will never change. What that means is it was good for Timothy and it's good for us. So, Blessed Hope Church, you should know this, that in the last days, those are the days that we're living in now, there will be very difficult times. Raise your hand if you were unclear that things are difficult. Don't raise your hand. That's a mistake. You, people would look at you funny. Of course it's bad. We know it's bad, right? But it's not like we should ever be surprised. See, I talk to people all the time who don't know the Bible. I talk to people all the time who, who think that uh, some people who do know the Bible, unfortunately, who think that things should be getting better. In fact, we have whole denominations that are built around the idea that if we work hard enough, we can somehow bring about this whole utopian kind of a thing where things will start to just be better, and they'll be better because that's what God has said it should look like. The problem is when I read something like this, and I read what Jesus says in, in the book of Matthew— we're told it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And it is going to get worse, and it is going to get worse, and it is going to get worse until the day that Christ returns to set things right. But we do not have power, we don't have power to fix the Word of God. And the Word of God says this, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. It's going to be bad. And so some of you are like, well, it's so bad that this must be the absolute end. You know that I've been having Christians, good, mature Christians, tell me that since I was like 12. I'm 42. So for 30 years, which is older than some of you are, have been alive, so for 30 years, I have been having people tell me any day now. It's going to be any day now. It's going to be any day now because things are getting so bad. And I'm sure they were saying that a lot longer than that. I'm sure, I'm sure they were saying that in World War II. 
I'm sure they were saying it in World War I. I'm sure they said it frequently during the Cold War, during the Missile Crisis. Always, man, it's almost here. I don't know. Anybody that tells you they know when it's going to be, just point them to Matthew 24, 36, because here's what Jesus says. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. He is very clearly there talking about uh, the end times in his return. He says, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son. Jesus here basically says, look, I am the second person of the Trinity. I am God in flesh, and I don't know when these things are going to happen. So here is the simple thing. The next time somebody wants to tell you when it's going to happen, you just ask them why they're smarter than Jesus. Why they know more than Jesus. Because Jesus says, I don't know. And if Jesus doesn't know, then somebody else that knows is clearly confused. They're clearly confused. They might be well-intentioned. Now, here's the deal. I hope it's soon. Because, listen, man, heaven is going to be awesome. And I hope it's soon. But on the other hand, I hope it takes a while. You know why I hope it takes a while? I hope it's soon because heaven is going to be awesome. You know why I hope it takes a while? Because there are people I know and love that don't know Jesus. And hell is real. And that's why we're told in Ephesians, we're told again in Colossians, because no one knows the day or hour, because we don't know, you do not waste a second. You leverage the time that's been given you. You redeem the time that's been given you to be on mission. Okay? But you should know this, Timothy. In the last days, there will be very difficult times ahead. Okay? And we keep going. Okay? And then we get into this, this chunk here um, in verses 2 through 4. And I'm going to read them to you, and we'll look at them on the screen in a minute, but I'm going I'm to read them to you because I think when we have them all in context, it tells us something. Okay? But this is what will be. There'll be difficult times ahead, and here's what they will look like. People will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Now, some of you, I read that and you're like, wow, that's pretty bad. Others of you, I read that and you're like, wow, that's like the junior high I go to. Because think about this. I'm going to read this again, and I want you to think about junior high. Either your own personal experience in junior high or when you were in junior high or your kids and how they talk about it. But here's, here's what it says again. People will love only themselves. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. They will be ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others. They won't have any self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Paul's telling Timothy there is that in the last days, people are going to act like they're 12. People are going to act like they're in middle school. All orthodoxy will go out the window. Therefore, all orthopraxy, the right behavior, will stop, and people will act like they're in middle school. And it's problematic for us, because here's the deal. 
What Paul's telling us pretty clearly is that it bleeds into the church. And the reason that happens, I'm convinced, is because in the American church, at least, what we've settled for is we've settled for a knowing about rather than a belief about. If I had given you all as you walked into the church, or if I had gone to Shopco yesterday and stood outside the doors and everybody that walked in, if I had given a survey that asked about right thinking, like what do you think is true about God? I would have had a lot of people that could answer all the questions. If I had said, look, if you can answer these questions about how Christians think, and I'll give you five bucks if you get them right, I would have given away a lot of money because a lot of people know. They know. They have this head knowledge. But between head knowledge and their heart, there's always this gap. And here's the problem, and this is how Satan works, and this is what what Paul is describing to Timothy. When I have a head knowledge, but it doesn't really get into my heart, means I know it, but I don't really believe it to be true. I know something, but it doesn't really impact my being. I can explain it, I can understand it, but I don't really believe it from my core. When that's what happens, there is no problem with changing it, and there is no problem with walking away from it, and there is no problem with compromising it, because it didn't mean anything to me in the first place. Because it never meant anything to me. But what happens when I have this knowledge, and somebody else comes along and says, you know what? I don't think that should be right anymore, and I think this is the way you should look at it. And I never believed it to begin with. It never impacted my life in one little bit. And what they're saying makes sense, and what they're saying makes me more popular, and what they're saying makes people like me, and I stop being the smell of death to people, and all of a sudden they start accepting me a little bit more. They maybe even call me progressive, cutting edge. Okay, well, I can abandon this because it never meant anything to me. And I can walk over here. You ever wonder about bandwagon fans? This is kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about bandwagon fans. Okay, don't lie. Raise your hand if you are all in on the Golden State Warriors right now. Really? Where's the Johnson family? Because your kids have always got the Golden State stuff on. Or uh, after the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. Yeah, that happened. Everybody was a Cubs fan. Or here's what happened after the Dodgers just traded for Manny Machado. Everybody's a Dodgers fan. But you know what? As soon as that team isn't good anymore, if I was a bandwagon fan, I jumped on because they were doing well right now. As soon as they stopped doing well, guess what? It never really meant anything to me, so I can pick a new team. I can jump onto a new team, and it's no big deal. Travis, oh my goodness, Travis, for a while, everything was Seahawks. Do you guys remember when Seattle was good for like a year? <laughs> and for a while, he, he had the, it was a stocking cap and it was a shirt and it's Seattle. And then all of a sudden, Seattle's terrible. Do you know, we haven't watched a Seahawks game in our house since the year they didn't win the Super Bowl. Because when I have a head knowledge, when I, when I have this, but it's not really in me, it is so easy to walk away from, and that is what Satan does to the church. That is what Satan has always done to the church, and it's what Satan relishes doing to the church. When your faith is about what you know rather than what you believe in your being and what you 
cherish in your being, then it's easy to be swayed into compromise. And Satan relishes it. Okay? But here's what Timothy says. He says, look, there's going to be people in those times, that's this time, he says, they're going to love only themselves. And that's the original sin, isn't it? Adam and Eve thinking better of themselves than they were, loving themselves more than they loved God, and so pursuing everything they thought they were owed. And it breaks everything. And these are people that will love their money. Right? These are people that will love their money. They'll love money so much they'll collect it, they'll hoard it, they'll cherish it, they'll leverage it to give themselves all kind of pleasures, they'll leverage it to give themselves everything they think they want or need or deserve. They'll go into debt over it, all while people suffer. All while people go without. These are people that will be boastful and proud, arrogant, thinking more highly of themselves than they have right to think of themselves and thinking less of everybody else that is made in the very image of the God of the universe. They'll scoff at God. These are people, listen to me now because this is dangerous and this would describe some of you at different times in your life. It describes me at different times in my life. These are the people that say, yeah, God, I know that's what your word says. You'll forgive me anyway. Yeah, God, I know what your word says, but you'll forgive me anyway so I can do whatever I want. I know you don't want me to be drunk, but it's Friday night and it's been a long week. And so I would love to open a second bottle of wine and you'll just forgive me anyway. I know what your word says about watching that stuff on the computer, but you'll forgive me anyway. I know what your word says about sex outside of marriage, but you know what? You'll forgive me anyway. It's not a big deal. These are people that scoff at God. They're disobedient to their parents. That doesn't mean what you think it means, right? When we say, when you read this long list of things that are really bad, and then we get to you're disobedient to your parents, you think we threw that in there just for the kids? No, no, no. This means we shun conventional wisdom. When, when Timothy, when, when Paul is writing this to Timothy, this is how you grow. This is how you learn. These are the people that are over you. They instruct you. Uh, Paul has taken, he tells us earlier in the letter, he takes the position of, of a spiritual father to Timothy because Timothy's father wasn't there, okay? But for most people, their spiritual authority was their father, their parents. And so what's happening here is, is when we are disobedient to our parents, it means we are shunning wisdom. We want nothing to do with wisdom. Don't tell me how to live. I want to go live my own life. And when we do that, we do that, we end up running our own way. Think prodigal son. Think about the prodigal son who, who was disobedient to his father and shunned the wisdom that his father wanted to give him, and he ran off and, and, in wild living and squandered everything and almost wasted his entire life until he decided that he would not be disrespectful to his parents, that he would come under his father's authority again. Keeps going. They'll be ungrateful. They'll take everything for granted. There is nothing that we have that is not the direct result of a blessing from God. 
But yet what happens in these last days is we stop believing and we start to compromise is we start to assume that everything we have is about us. And so we're not grateful for it. We've earned it. Everything you have, I start to think, is everything I have is because I deserve it. Everything I have is because I worked hard and I gained it for myself. And everything I have is mine and I have nobody to thank but me. And I stop being grateful for everything that's been given. And they will consider nothing sacred. And that happens when we start to, when, when we start to love ourselves more than we love God. We consider nothing sacred. Nothing's off limits. And you see that in, in the American church all over the place today. We've got, we've got whole churches. Individuals in churches, yes. And there are always will be individuals in churches that believe wrong things. Why? Because the church doors are always wide open. On purpose. The church doors are always wide open. Come into the church. Learn here grow. So the church doors are always wide open. So there will always be individuals in the church who think things that aren't quite right. That's our job then as a church. Remember, we draw them in. There's no pre-screening to be drawn in, right? But once you're here, what's our job? To teach, to grow, to disciple, right? So there will always be people in the church, but what happens is the church itself will start to hold nothing sacred, and when the church itself starts to hold nothing sacred, everything falls apart because I'm not teaching anything that's right. So that we've drawn people in who think wrong because I don't want to offend them and I, and I don't want to smell funky to them. I don't want to be a fragrance of death. I start to say everything they want to do, everything they want to think, everything they want to say, that's all fine and good. Just as long as they're here. Just as long as they can say Jesus and not get hit by lightning, I think we're all set. And so they come in and I don't teach them and then I send them out so that they go and they take that false teaching to other people and they bring them in. And it's this cycle. And man, it goes fast. And it falls apart fast. And there is nothing sacred anymore. That's why we have denominations that will actually tell you in their teaching, their denominational teaching for their network of churches, that this is great. It's a nice book. But it has to be drug kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And that we should take culture and use culture to understand this book instead of taking this book and using it as the lenses to understand the culture that we live in. And they do it backwards. Why? Because they want to smell better. It's why we have churches that will tell you that abortion is fine. God's word tells us, God's word, Psalm 139 tells us that you were knit together in your mother's womb. That God, the God of the universe, had a hand in forming you and creating you and putting your DNA together and making you what you're supposed to be. That God himself has done that. And yet you're going to have churches that in the name of Jesus operate and say, you know what though? You can end those lives anytime you feel like it if it's inconvenient. I mean, and that's, that's, in my mind, that's the worst one, and it just goes from there. And I'm going to go ahead and pause and stop and, and listen to me. If you are here today and you have had an abortion, or you are here today and you have, um, as, as a man, you have participated, or as a parent, you have encouraged an abortion and those things, listen to me. God is not angry with you, and I am not angry with you, but there is repentance that needs to happen. 
Because when we understand the cross, and when we understand what it means to be right and to follow the God of the universe, we understand what it means to live under his submission. And that means I don't do things because they're easy. So if that's you here today and, and that describes you, I would just say, listen, listen, nobody is mad at you and God has open arms and he is ready for you, but you do need to repent and move. But they'll consider nothing sacred. Everything falls apart, okay? They'll be unloving and unforgiving. Makes sense, right? We love because God loves us. Love that exists that we can operate in is agape love. Agape love is covenant committed kind of love. I had this great blessing to do a wedding yesterday. Uh, they're not here today. They're obviously on their honeymoon. But uh, Susan Tharp and, and Mike Osborne, who are newer folks to the church in the last year, um, have gone through their premarital counseling. And, and yesterday they were married and it was great. And what they pledged to one another standing right here was this covenant committed kind of love. And the charge I gave them as, as I was addressing them for all to hear about their new marriage was simply this. They can fulfill their covenant commitment to love one another with real agape kind of love only because. Only because. That is the way that God has loved them. And so when we start to shun God, we lose our ability to love unconditionally. And we're not forgiving, and we slander others. We put other people down because it makes us feel better and because it puffs us up, and we have no self control. And we're cruel. In these last days, people will be cruel, which means they will worry more about themselves than anybody else, and they don't care what carnage they leave in their path. They'll hate what's good, they'll cling to evil. They'll be reckless, they'll be puffed up with pride, and they will love pleasure rather than God. And I'm going to be honest with you, that shouldn't be hard for us to figure out. Because loving pleasure rather than God is a pretty simple thing. Pleasure is immediate. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can control pleasure for a second. You can't control God. Pleasure has a narcotic effect. I can do something specifically to engage in this momentary pleasure. It doesn't last. The returns are diminishing. But there's something about it that people love and it draws us in. But finding pleasure in God, finding pleasure in God is, it's the long game. It's joy in the moment, but it's, it's understanding that my joy in the moment oftentimes comes from self-sacrifice, from putting others first, from choosing godliness and righteousness instead of ungodliness. And so people, because they, they have no self-control, they will start to love pleasure more than they love God. And some of you know, man, some of you that are mired in addiction, some of you that can't stop, even though you know you want to stop, and you fill in the blank for whatever the addiction is. Some of you that just can't quit, even though you know you want to quit. It's because what happens is pleasure has this narcotic effect, and I dig in there, and it's so hard to break away. And you're like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to break away from that. I don't know how to engage in this. Well, you know what? It starts with this understanding that you need to love God more than you love pleasure. Quick plug. If that's you, if I'm describing you, one, we should talk about it. Two, 
Celebrate Recovery, Wednesday nights at Revolution Church is a great program for you to be a part of that will start to, start to help you figure out what that means. Okay? We keep going. 2 Timothy 3, 5. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. This is how this text ends. They'll act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. They will have a flavor of religious. See, what happens with these folks in these last days, um, is it too strong to use the word charlatan? I don't know. But what happens is, is they have a flavor of religiosity. They'll know Christian cliches. They'll even make some stuff up that sounds Christian. Right? They'll say things that sound compelling. And not only do they sound compelling, but you know what else? They make people like us better. Hmm. And so it's an easy sell. And so we walk after that. And we don't have any problem walking after that because it starts to make sense. Right? It's, it's the argument that says, you know what? God is love. God is love. And God would never send anybody to hell because God loves people like crazy. So hell isn't real. We're like, okay, so, hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, God is love. That's a true statement. We read that in 1 John. God is love. Hell is really bad. Right? So maybe it's true that God is love and he won't send anybody to hell and that makes sense to me. Plus, if I can start to wrap my head around that kind of thinking, you know what, and I start telling people that, I'm like, well, God loves you and, and he wants you to be a Christian. He wants you to follow Jesus. But even if you don't, he's not going to send you to hell. Like all of a sudden, that becomes a popular teaching. And when I say things like that, people are like, oh man, that guy, he is progressive. That guy, man, he, is, he knows what's going on. Like, he has figured out what this is all about. He is the one I want to listen to and learn from and get my teaching from. But none of it makes sense. They will act religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. You stay away from people like that because they ruin faith. We talked about false teaching several weeks back. You can go back and listen online if you need to. But false teaching ruins faith. And in today's day and age with the internet and with podcasts and with YouTube, you can find teachers that will tell you anything that you want to know. A friend of ours sent us a, a link the other day about a certain kind of blood type being alien descendants. Whatever. But you know what? When you read it, it's compelling. It's compelling. Like, if you didn't have another basis, if you weren't rooted somewhere, you could listen to this and you'd be like, man, that makes sense. Which, by the way, Carrie has that blood type. <laughs> now you're like, man, now it make no, come on, stop it. It's my wife you're talking about. But here's the thing, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. And when we can teach people, listen to me. This is why I always tell you, do not take my word for it. Because maybe, maybe, probably not. You're thinking, Matt, you do not have that skill. But some of you might think I have the skill of maybe being persuasive. And so maybe I might persuade you somewhere. But you don't believe something just because I tell you. Now, I've made a, a covenant commitment with you to tell you what I believe the word of God says 
with, with, with clarity. But you don't have to believe something just because I said it. You should ask the questions and you should follow up and, and you should ask me about it or you should do your own study and research. That's just the way this works. Because there are people that will be compelling that will have a flavor of Christianity, that will have a flavor of religion, but they will deny its power. The power is the cross. By the way, that's what that means. They will stay away, or uh, the, the power that could make them godly. The power that could make them godly is the resurrected Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living in them. And when you deny the resurrected Christ, you can't have the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you godly. You are out. You might be able to say certain things, but it won't work. Let's finish out the text here. Well, actually, let me, let me tell you this one thing. This is another one of Satan's things. And I want you to be on guard. I want you to be cautious. I don't want you to believe the lie that you can be fine as a Christian and not be actively engaged in Christian discipleship. And some of you, I firmly believe, are stuck in that lie. And it's a dangerous game, and I'm going to be honest, that's Satan's ploy with you. That you can be a good, growing Christian, but not actively doing anything to help you grow. I think it's a lie of the enemy for you to say, I am going to be just fine as a Christian who doesn't get sucked into untruth, who doesn't get sucked into lies, who doesn't start to believe false things, who doesn't compromise orthodoxy, who doesn't compromise orthopraxy, I'm going to be fine, but I'm going to stay in a bubble in isolation, and I'm not going to dig into Christian discipleship. This is why we believe small groups is so important, or accountability groups, or some kind of intentional, I mean, if it's not a small group, some kind of intentional group discipleship that happens with somebody else. I mean, it could be meeting for coffee once a week and just sitting down and having coffee and sharing life together and hearing from God's word and, and, and just being accountable to one another. But you have to do something. It's a lie of the enemy to believe that I don't have to do this and I will be just fine. Paul very clearly is saying you can't do that because there is this natural drift that happens. And that's my job as your pastor, elders. That's our job for you as the church is to make sure that we, that we are continuing engaging in these things. Parents, that's your job with your kids. That's why, when, that's why when our kids whine about different things or they complain about something or they're not sure they want to, that's why as parents we have to say, you know what, no, we're digging into this. We have to be actively engaged in discipleship because if we're not, we'll drift. Our kids have to know that the world is broken. Church has to know that the world is broken. We have to know what evil is and we have to call it evil. Because if we don't call it evil, if the church doesn't call it evil, guess what? Our culture that Satan is manipulating will call it progressive and good and right. But God's word says, no, 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 no. There is holiness and there is unholiness and that is it. It's a tactic of the enemy. Let's finish this out quickly. Um, they're the kind, this, talking about these people that look religious but are not, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes. They win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by their various desires. Such women are forever following new teaching, but they're never able to understand the truth. Now, because it says women, don't get upset. 
Some of you are like, why is Paul always so down on women? Paul's not down on women. We can have that conversation another time. In the context he's writing, women are taken advantage of because what's happened is under Jewish culture and under um, Roman culture, women were not allowed to engage in teaching. Under this new Christian freedom, women are allowed to engage in teaching, but they don't know what they don't know because they've always been held back in this teaching. And so now that they're actively engaged in this teaching, they have become easy targets. Guys, that's our high school students. That's our college students right now. They are easy targets. Okay? And there are people that intentionally will try to make disciples out of them. And that's what was happening with the women because they hadn't been taught from childhood. They didn't know, right? And now they're invited into this and they're learning for the first time and and people are taking advantage of them and they're trying to make disciples out of them. And so these women, they know they're burdened with guilt and they know they need something. And they latch on to this teaching that sounds right. And it ruins the faith of some. These teachers oppose truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. By the way, you won't find those names in your Old Testament. Janus and Jambres. Um, good Jewish tradition tells us that they are the two chief magicians in Pharaoh's court. When Moses would come and Moses threw the staff down as he was bringing the plagues and it became a snake. And in Exodus, it tells us, well, the magicians did the same thing. Moses turned the river to blood and the magicians came with a bowl of water and did the same thing and turned it to blood. Having, having a flavor of power and religion but it wasn't authentic. So Paul says these people that that are leading people astray in the church or these churches that are leading people astray from orthodoxy and orthopraxy, they are like Janus and Jambres, right? They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they'll be found out. They won't get away with it because someday everyone will recognize what fools they are just as what happened with Janus and Jambres. And good Jewish tradition tells us that Pharaoh had them executed when they couldn't keep up with God, right? Started with trying to to mimic God on a small scale, and eventually the plagues got so serious that they couldn't keep up and they they, they couldn't duplicate, and so Pharaoh had them executed, is what tradition tells us. And someday, the churches that teach falsehood or the people that believe and practice falsehood will be exposed in that way. And so there's a couple things I want you to know as we close up. Okay, just, just something for you um, to chew on. Who you are will always come out. Who you are will always be exposed. What you believe will always flow. Eventually, the frustration, the pressure, maybe it's anger, something, and your character will ultimately be exposed for what it is. That will happen, okay? And so build your, careful, your character carefully because it will come out under stress. You do nobody favors by faking it. Build your character carefully because it will come out under stress. And listen to this. Live each day, right, as if your actions will one day be known to everybody. Stop doing things in secret that you think will be secret because one day they will be known to everybody because your character will